Thanks, Carl. Um, lovely to be back with you again this week. It's always good for a visiting preacher when there's people there the second week. So, um, yeah, nice to see you again. Um, as I said last week, I spent most of my time, uh, well, I spent part of my time working for Trinity Church Adelaide in on North Terrace. Uh, but the rest of my time, I work for an organisation called the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students, or ES here in Adelaide. Uh, this is a Christian campus ministry that has groups all around our country, and in fact, we're part of a global movement called the IFES, the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, uh, which has uh, Christian groups in nearly 180 countries around the world. Uh, many of you here are familiar with the work of ES, particularly in Adelaide. Uh, we have, uh, there are groups in all the different campuses here, uh, almost all the campuses. We'd like to start something at Wait. Uh, so if you want to interested in that at some point, come and have a chat with me. Uh, but uh, I particularly spend my time working on North Terrace at Adelaide Uni and at City East and City West. And many of you in this congregation are partners with us in that ministry. Uh, if you haven't heard of it, I thought I'd tell you a bit about what's going on on campus because the really encouraging news, in case you weren't aware, is that there is an active and growing witness to Jesus at our universities, uh, which sometimes you could think otherwise. Uh, as you know, our universities are increasingly secular and in some cases hostile towards faith and towards Christianity. Uh, nevertheless, Jesus said he'll build his church, uh, and that's all over the world, including on our campuses. Uh, there's lots of things I could tell you about the campus ministry, um, but I thought I'd just tell you one story and then let you know how you can find out more afterwards. Uh, it's a story that in many ways sums up everything that we're trying to do at university uh, with our students uh, as we try and give them a chance to interact with Jesus at a key and formative stage of life. The story is about a fellow called Will, uh, who um, is in his second year of engineering this year, uh, grew up in a Christian family, uh, in fact he's a minister's kid of all things, uh, but in his high school years, I guess, made a decision that Jesus wasn't for him and so walked away from the church and from faith and obviously that was a complicated time for him and his family. When he got to university last year, uh, he bumped into some school friends uh, who invited him to come along to the Christian group, to ES at Adelaide Uni. And uh, I guess having made the transition from home life as a, a high school student to university and just seeing that everything was kind of different and big, a chance to make a new start for himself, but also at one level very lonely and isolating. Uh, he came along to one of our meetings uh, where the Bible was opened and explained and a chance just to catch up with us afterwards and found himself interested and intrigued and kept coming. In the middle of the year each year we run a conference. Uh, the students aren't very creative in their marketing. They call it mid-year conference. It's a conference in the middle of the year. Uh, and... Uh, Will decided that he'd come along, even though he wasn't a Christian. This is five days away where the topic uh, was just looking at an aspect of the Bible for an entire week. Uh, he came along to it, uh, came back afterwards, and uh, when I spoke to him, I said, you know, what's the next step for you? You're obviously sort of interested in Jesus, but you're trying to work out what's going on. And he said, to be honest, I don't actually know who Jesus is, even though I've grown up in church all my life. At that point, uh, one of our trainee staff, uh, we, we run a part of a traineeship program where those who are thinking about the possibility of being, I guess, in full-time vocational ministry in the future have a chance to come and work with us for a couple of years, sort of a try before you buy, if I can put it that way. Uh, he caught up with one of our trainees and one of the other students in the course, in his course, and for the next six months, each week, they got together and they just read a chapter of Mark's Gospel. Uh, at the end of each week, they'd ask questions, He'd go away, come back again the next week. Uh, and in the kindness of God, by the end of last year, had reached a point where he understood that Jesus is the one who says that he will die to take away my sins and that 
in serving him I find life. And so at the end of last year, Will became a believer, which is just wonderful news. Uh, this year, in his second year at university, he's continued to get involved. He's joined a local church. And uh, we had our outreach week just a couple of weeks ago uh, called Jesus Week. And it was just a real thrill and delight to watch as Will brought a number of his friends that he's made at university over the last year along to the same talks that he himself sat in as an unbeliever uh, not 12 months ago. Uh, It's just one story that gets repeated time and time again. Uh, People often ask me what is happening on campus and I think in many ways that's the best way to sum it up. Uh, Jesus said he will build his church and he will do so. Uh, We would love it if you would pray for the students because it's not easy standing up for Christ for some of them for the first time in their life. Uh, We'd love it if you would pray for them. And uh, one of the ways in which we can encourage you to do that, inside your leaflet you'll see these little um, newsletters there for you to take away. They're not to read today, but to take away and be encouraged more about what God is doing amongst students on campus. Thanks very much, Carl. What's happening on campus? Great to hear stories. Let me pray for Jeff and for AFES now. Father God, we want to thank you for the work that you are doing amongst our university campuses. Thank you for the stories uh, that Jeff is able to tell for people like Will. Father, we pray that you would keep working through Jeff and through uh, his team of people there, that they would be able to proclaim your name with truth and integrity, and that much fruit would be born from that. Amen. We're going to uh, switch our attention now to reminding each other of what it is that we believe is a church. And we're going to say together the words of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, If you're here because you're just interested in knowing what Trinity Church only is about, please don't feel obliged to say these words with us, but they are a great summary of what it is that we believe. Uh, So please uh, just listen along if that's you. And encourage you to stand as we say these words together. They'll be on the screen behind me. So what is it that we believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Well, please have a seat. David's going to come up now and read to us from Psalm 127. As David makes his way up, let me... Uh, pray for us as the Bible's read. Father God, we uh, thank you that Jeff can be with us this morning as he explains this psalm to us. We pray that you would help him to speak clearly and help us to listen to what you have to say to us this morning. We pray that you'd help David as he reads uh, your words to us this morning as well. Amen. Psalm 127 on page 968, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, 
the gods stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. All right, thanks very much, David. Can I ask you please to take out from your leaflets this little insert? Uh, You'll see there's a copy of Psalm 127, and all five verses have been printed there, and an outline on the reverse that will help you to follow along as to what I'm going to speak about this morning. Uh, As I said, uh, it's lovely to be back with you as we make our way through this short series on the Psalms. You can work out what we're doing. Last week, 126. This week, 127. Next week, Psalm 128. If you look down the bottom of the front side, uh, you'll see just a reminder of uh, what I'm saying is, I think, the key to the reading of the Psalms. Uh, As we read these great songs from the Old Testament, uh, the key as you read them is to ask what God is like before you ask the question of how ought we live. Uh, And you'll see a couple of the reasons there underneath. uh, Because uh, it enables us to avoid the trap of moralism, that is, of just trying to repeat the actions of the Old Testament Jews, because, to be really blunt, none of us are Old Testament Jews. Uh, And in fact, God's the central character in the Bible. Uh, You'll see it enables us then, secondly, to see how Jesus is the one who fully reveals what God is like and describes who he is. And the third reason there is I hope that by the end of this series, if for you the Psalms have been one of those parts of the Bible that you've wanted to read but never been quite sure how to do so, that you go away with the confidence to do so for yourself. So that's kind of why we're doing it this way. Um, With that in mind, if you have a look on the other side of the handout, you'll see an outline. Uh, I'll follow the same pattern as last week. So what Psalm 127 says about God... Uh, Second, how it points us towards Jesus, and then thirdly, uh, what it might ask of us today. So, let's get straight into it then. Firstly, what does Psalm 127 say about God? Now, the first thing you will have noticed, uh, as it was read to us by David, was that Psalm 127 begins with the fact that it's a song of ascent. A song of ascent. Do you remember from last week, the songs of ascents? These were the group of 15 psalms from 120 through 134, that the Jews sang as they literally ascended their way up the mountain to the temple to meet with God. And I said, it's kind of like then what you might listen to uh, in the car on the way to church uh, as you drive here on a Sunday morning. Uh, But you'll have noticed as well that uh, this time we're told it's a song of Solomon. A song of Solomon. And that will become relevant to us later. Well, once again, the song, like 126, 127 is in two parts. And that's why I've laid it out the way I have on your handout, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 3 through 5. The first part of the psalm gives a general theme, and then the second part of the psalm gives a specific focus. And we're going to look at it in those two parts. So firstly, part 1, the general theme, verses 1 through 2. Now, I've printed the passage there so that with your pen, you can write on the handout. I know some of you will feel guilty about writing in Bibles. So you've got a piece of paper there. I want you to see if you can underline what you think is the big idea in verses 1 to 2, let me give you a hint, it's not very hard, it's repeated three times. Okay? Here we go, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labour in vain. 
Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch. In vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those who he loves. Okay, not very hard to work this one out, is it? What the first part of the psalm is about. There are three snapshots of family life. Building a house, defending a city, uh, working overtime just to feed, feed your family. In every situation, what the song is telling us is that our efforts, our plans, our labours, they are pointless unless the Lord is behind them all. Because it's God who builds. It's God who watches over the city. It's God who even grants us sleep. Now, that's a particularly poignant idea, I think, when you recall that the author was, as I said, Solomon. Solomon, uh, the third king of Israel, the one who was famous for building God's house, God's temple. This extraordinary building has come to be known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Solomon built it. And yet in many ways, Psalm 127 perfectly anticipated what would happen. Verse 1, unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. It perfectly anticipates what happens because, well, in 586, Babylon burned Jerusalem to the ground and carted all of Israel's leaders off into exile. The big idea, I think, in Psalm 127 is that only God can bring success to our plans. That, of course, therefore, is a massive rebuke to, and it's printed there on your handout, it's a massive rebuke to what's called secular humanism. Secular humanism. Now, just to explain a fancy philosophical term, secular humanism is the view that we can do anything if we put our minds to it. We can accomplish anything if we put our minds to it. And the problem with secular humanism, of course, is that it leads to the inevitable activism that characterises Australian society at large. Such a view, of course, seeps inevitably into the church. I don't need to tell you that overwork is a problem even for Christians. Ultimately, it stems from the misguided view that we are in control that we are masters of our fate and captains of our soul. Mind you, of course, we're not to lurch to the opposite extreme. The opposite extreme of overwork, of course, is idleness. That's of giving up, not giving our best. As if, for Christians, well, things are so hopeless that we might as well just let go and let God take care of it all. It doesn't take us to that extreme because clearly Psalm 127 expects us to play our part. The builder still has to build. The guards still have to stand watch over the city. The worker who wants to eat still has to turn up at work at 9am on Monday. But the point that's being made, I think, is that giving our best is a necessary but insufficient condition for success. Ultimately, we need God to be at work in us and through us. That's why I think in many ways the most evocative image in the whole psalm is in verse 2. 
The Lord grants sleep to those he loves. The Lord grants sleep to those he loves. Which is why I said there on your handout, oh, for a moment to reflect on the glorious bliss of sleep. If only you can get it. It's a picture here of a man who doesn't need to rise early or stay up late trying just to make ends meet because if God bears ultimate ultimate responsibility for his success, if it's God who's responsible for building the house and watching over the city, for giving us today our daily bread, then not only can we rely on him to provide, but we can afford to ease up a little, knowing that he is good for his word. When I was at Bible college, uh, the principal of my Bible college uh, had a saying... He used to say that the reason God made day and night was so that we'd have to go to bed and realise that the world keeps turning even whilst we're asleep. No wonder then, I think, that verse 2 says, good sleep is a gift from God. Good sleep, it is a gift from God. How delightful it is when you can be out like a light the moment your head hits the pillow. Doing so because of your confidence that God's, because of your confidence in God's character. How wonderful it is when you can go to bed unburdened by all the tasks that you set for yourself that day but fail to complete. How wonderful that you can stop worrying and stressing about tomorrow. It has troubles enough of its own, to be really honest. Instead, How wonderful to be able to down tools for the day, to head to bed, not because you've given up, but because you know that God never stops working for the good of those who love him. Well, that's the first part of the psalm. The second part then focuses in specifically on one area where God's control is ever so apparent. So pick it up with me then in verses 3 through 5. Verse 3, children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. What I think Solomon is saying here in Psalm 127 is that one of the ways in which God brings our plans to fruition is to provide us with helpers. In this case, he's describing children who will be like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Or to use a only slightly less warlike image, children who will support you when you contend with your opponent in court. For many in much of the world, in the global south, for example, this is their reality. Having children is the only way to provide for a family's future. Now, of course, the astute amongst us, those who know the story of Solomon well, will recall that the author was rather prolific when it came to spawning offspring. Solomon, after all, had, well, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Uh, So you might say that Solomon had a bit of a head start on most of us when it came to filling his quiver. 
Please note, if you will, then, that Psalm 127 is not saying children are merely utilitarian assets given by God to realise your goals and dreams. Heaven help the child through whom a parent is trying to achieve glory. Uh, If nothing else, having children doesn't guarantee the success of your plans. That would contradict verses 1 and 2. And of course, to state the obvious, sadly, for many with a deep longing to have children, they cannot. Either because there's no one for them to have them with, or because they're unable to medically. When we read Psalm 127, I think that both singleness and infertility are a reminder that the offspring promised in this psalm They are not just the products of our will. If you've ever seen a married couple struggle with infertility, you'll know that against the claims of modern science, against the boasts of secular humanism, we cannot achieve everything we put our mind to. Because in the end, it's God who gives life, not us. We're not in control. He is. But if you are blessed with children, Psalm 127 is a reminder they are a gift from God. In fact, verse 3 calls them a reward and a heritage because they are one specific example, I think, of God's blessing of our plans and our initiatives. Well, that's the first part of the talk, what Psalm 127 says about God and about his character. Let me move more briefly then to the second part. How does Psalm 127 point us to Jesus? And as we saw last week, in lots of different ways. If you reflect on the themes in Psalm 127, well, by the time you come to the New Testament, we are reminded that Jesus is the one who urges us to build our houses on solid rock, not on sinking sands. It's Jesus who speaks of our children as being a blessing, in fact, the ones to whom the kingdom of God belongs. But once again, like last week, as I reflected on Psalm 127, I find myself drawn to Jesus' opening sermon, uh, the Sermon in the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5. I printed a couple of verses there for you from chapter 6. Look at what Jesus says. Matthew 6, verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about, the clo- about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labour or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and gone tomorrow, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? One of the reasons I chose this passage today is because of the stark contrast with Solomon. You see, despite all of Solomon's efforts to build God's house, the temple, despite all of Solomon's efforts to fill his quiver with children, his splendour is nothing when compared with the God who adorns the flowers of the field. 
What Jesus is doing, I think, in Matthew 6, he's placing before us a choice. It's a choice between, on the one hand, chasing self-sufficient independence, of looking after ourselves, of providing for ourselves. After all, the great Australian dream these days, well, it's not, it's not only a home, the great Australian dream is self-funded retirement, of being able to travel wherever you want, whenever you want, whilst you still have your health. On the one hand, Solomon is contrasting self-sufficient independence and the alternative, which to be really frank is quite terrifying, the alternative of trusting our Heavenly Father to provide when He sees fit, as He sees fit. Understand that for those of us who are raised to be independent, that thought is terrifying. And yet Jesus says, if you opt for the latter, what you gain is the glorious freedom of being like a little child. A little child who has no worries or concerns because its parents always take care of it. The great privilege of children, I think, is that quite literally they can afford to be carefree. I can tell you, as what some of you know even better than I do, as someone well past childhood, that at some stage, every adult longs to be a child again. To not have to do the worrying, confident that someone else will. What Psalm 127 says about God... How it points us towards Jesus. Let me try and tie it all together then with a few reflections on what it might ask of us today. What does Psalm 127 ask of you and I, uh, you and me? Well, let me observe firstly that Psalm 127 is justifiably famous amongst Christians. It's a famous psalm, one that's well loved by many. There is a good reason why it is one of the most famous wall tapestries. That's, of course, why I've printed a picture of one there on you. Now, let me ask, who has this in their home? No one. Oh, come on. Who has seen this in people's homes? Yes, of course you have. Everyone has. Um, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. Verse 4, of course, is a common prayer at Christian weddings. You know, Lord, bless the happy couple with a quiver full of children quickly, which always leads to nervous and awkward laughter from everyone who's gathered there particularly from the bride. Let me ask then or pose two questions which I think Psalm 127 asks of us today. One is general, sorry, one is specific and one is general. Let me start with a specific question. I've printed both there on your handout. Firstly, are you willing to have more children? Are you willing to have more children? Uh, In modern Australia, very few, I think, are in danger of having too many children, as if the having of children might guarantee the success of our plans. I don't need to remind you of what you know to be true, that is increasingly 20-somethings and 30-somethings are choosing not to have children uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. Sometimes it's because there's a fear that children will impede our lifestyle or derail our career plans. Uh, Interestingly... I think there's a growing conversation around 
not having children to avoid overpopulation and overcrowding. I point this out because Christians, of course, are not immune to prevailing culture. The easy availability of contraception, which, for the record, I think is a good thing, the easy availability of contraception, I think, has deluded even Christians into thinking that we are in control when it's God who gives life, not us. In fact, because no contraception is 100% effective, uh, what I like to tell engaged couples when, when they're preparing them for marriage uh, is that we say to them, unless you're prepared to have a honeymoon baby, you should call the wedding off. And that usually puts a bit of a look of panic in their faces. But the point is that in the end, if God wants to bless you with children, he's going to do so, whether or not you think you're ready for it. What Psalm 127 does, I think, is ask hard questions of married Christians who choose not to have children or who keep delaying them. Because of reasons like, well, perceived financial benefit or burden. You know, we want to buy a house first before we're ready to settle down and have kids. Psalm 127, I think, urges us to be very careful about rejecting God's good gifts about not believing him when he says that they are a heritage and a reward. Even if that's very hard in practice. Uh, Once again, when I was back in Bible college, uh, one of our lecturers was asked, you know, how many children should Christians have? Ridiculous question to ask, right? But that's what Bible college students do. How many children should Christians have? His answer? More. And that's the reason why, as most of you know, Wendy and I have three children. We're both born as one of two only, but after having two kids, we kind of figured, well, do you know what? This would be for us comfortable and straightforward. Three will be the one that will push us into recognising that we are not in control which has been evident every day since. (laughs) Although having said that, we didn't stretch to four either. Some of you are saying, well, Jeff, that's all well and good to challenge married couples, to challenge those who might one day be married. But what about those who would love to have children but cannot? What does it mean to ask, are you willing to have more children if you can't have any at all? Either because there's no one for you to have them with or because you're unable to because of infertility. Well, let me make this suggestion. Psalm 127 is obviously about biological children. That's clear from the situation and I guess from the context at the time. But I think more than genetic offspring must be on view when you consider the Bible's incredibly high view of adoption. After all, Romans 8 describes all Christians as being God's adopted children. That's the reason why we greet each other as brother or sister not because we have a biological connection, 
but because we share the same older brother. His name is Jesus. It seems to me that, in fact, to adopt or foster a child who is biologically unrelated to you, well, it seems to me that points even more powerfully to God's grace and generosity and goodness towards us. Here's the part where I really want to push you today, and we'll stop for questions in a little while like we did last week. What I want to say today is that given the tragic reality of unwanted children in our society, I want to push back on the traditional Christian view that, Christ, that children must be raised in nuclear families where there's a mummy and a daddy. I want to say that all Christians, married and single, should be challenged, encouraged and supported to foster and adopt. If you want to know why I think that, that's what's called a retrieval ethic, or if I can put it this way, making the best of a bad situation. And as I said, perhaps you might like to ask about that in question time. Well, the first question that I think Psalm 127 asks of us, specifically, are you willing to have more children? The second question then, this is more general, do you live like you believe that God alone can provide? So beyond the specific question about children, what is Psalm 127 asking of us today? Well, remember how I talked earlier about the opposite wrong extremes of overwork and idleness? Which of those two are you most prone to? Which of those two do you gravitate towards? I'm sure that for all of us, actually, in the end, the risk is overwork, is it not? I'm pretty sure that living in the kind of culture that we do, our social media envy-driven culture, makes us worry that if we're not into everything all of the time somehow we could be missing out. Surely workaholism is our great risk. So here's what Psalm 127, I think, is asking of us today. Do you live like you actually believe that God alone can provide for you? Do you live like you actually believe that unless God builds your metaphorical house, whatever that may be, your labours will be in vain? Do you live like you actually believe that without his blessing, you will never find the rest and peace that you crave and which God-given sleep alone can bring? My great fear is that there are many, many Christians in our city who solemnly pause every Sunday morning for 90 minutes to affirm their need for God's provision. Mm, yes, God is sovereign, God's in control, we need his help. They pause for 90 minutes every Sunday morning before they resume racing around like mad people Monday through Saturday, exactly the same way as everyone else around us does 
Which, if I can put it this way, that makes perfect sense if you're an unbeliever. If you're an unbeliever, you might as well race around like a crazy person all week because there is no one else to provide for you. You have no one else to depend on. So how do we tell? How do we tell if we've fallen into that trap? Well, two practical suggestions for you for this week ahead. First suggestion. Can I ask you to consider giving away something that you regard as key to your self-provision? Let me ask you to consider giving away something that you consider key to your self-provision. Now, don't worry, I'm not going too far. I didn't say give away everything. Just start with something. A meal. A warm jumper. One paycheck. Start with something that you think is key to your self-provision that you give away because you trust that your Heavenly Father will provide as He sees fit, when He sees fit. And the good thing is He knows best. Second suggestion. This brings me back to where I started last week with the reflection that this church was planted not to be just a place for Christians to meet, but that you might meet those who don't know Christ yet in Unley, in this part of God's world, that they might come to know him as well. So, with that in mind, here's my second suggestion. Can I ask you to commit to praying for one person each day for one week who doesn't know Jesus. One person, each day, for one week, who doesn't know Jesus. Now, it could be the same person if you want. The point is to pray once a day for one week for someone who you long to come to know Christ as you do. The reason I want to say that is because we evangelicals are always insisting that it's up to God to save people which of course is entirely right. But that conviction is meant to be more than comfort when we don't see mass revival. That conviction is meant to shape the way in which we live. So let's live like we believe it to be true. Let's play our part, call on our God, beg him to show grace and mercy to someone else the way in which he's shown it to us. Because by praying for your friend, family member, workmate, neighbour, by praying for them, you're saying that you trust our Heavenly Father to provide as he sees fit, when he sees fit. And the good thing is, thankfully, he knows best. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the goodness that you have showered on us in so many ways. 
above all in the gift of the Lord Jesus. Uh, We pray that in this week ahead, uh, you might give us opportunity and courage to testify to Jesus to someone in our life each day. We pray also that um, you might enable us to be serious about examining how deeply our desire for self-sufficiency runs. And we pray that you'd help us to see that we are blessed with the privilege of having you, our heavenly provider. So we ask that you might enable us to call on you in this week ahead for Jesus' sake. Amen.